Vermont Viewpoint is a public affairs program produced and funded by WDEV and the Radio Vermont Group. We welcome listener feedback. Email your comments to vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. Good morning, everyone. This is Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. This morning's show, first hour, we're going to be talking about wake boats. Second hour, we're going to be talking about the omnibus housing bill that was passed by the legislature this year. So joining me on the phone today is Oliver Pearson, who's the manager of the Lakes Monitoring and Assessment Section of the Department of Environmental Conservation, which is part of ANR. Welcome, Oliver. Good morning, Pat. Thanks for having me. Quite the title goes on. Is that a two, two-sided uh, business card? Yeah, my, my, I'm, I am indeed a program manager with that uh, Department of Environmental Conservation. I, I call it the Lakes and Ponds <laughs> Management and Protection Program. So we do everything from you know, handing out permits to, to develop shorelands uh, according to statute to, as you, as you said, monitoring the health of, of the state's 800-plus lakes and ponds and looking at trends of, of deteriorating water quality in some cases and trying to reverse those trends to you know, combating aquatic invasive species, keeping them out of our waters if possible, and, and lots of other things. So it is it is a big program with a with a large important mandate. You know, Vermonters love their lakes, and it's our role to try to keep them as healthy as possible. Well, I agree with you there. Um, you must have a little bit of science in your background, Oliver, to do all that. Do you? Yeah, I do. I, I have. Um, both a, a master's in science and, and a bachelor's in science degrees, and I've, I've studied things like what happens um, to water quality in lakes when lots of phosphorus uh, comes in off the watershed uh, and, and, and how that phosphorus can be filtered out as, as, a, as rivers flow through wetlands. I've looked at how land use change um, affects water quality in lakes. Um, so yeah, some some scientific background, and that's an important mm-hmm. part of what we do. And equally important is just being able to to listen to people, to talk to people, to explain what we're trying to achieve, hear what people's concerns are, and and try to develop collaborative programs that lead to you know improved water quality one one way or another. So lots of different aspects of of this job, and and we're we're fortunate right now in Vermont to have funding from both state and, and federal sources to implement projects that can improve water quality. And so being able to manage the money and, and design projects is also a big part of what we do. That's great. Um, we're going to talk about uh, wake boats today, but Oliver, do you get involved? You must get involved with Lake Champlain, don't you? Sure. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah. Our, that's, our, that's our big lake. Uh, that's you know, something that Vermont is, is very well known for. We, we of course, share it with New York and Quebec. Um, and it's it's a lake that, you know, probably thousands, if not tens of thousands, if not more people enjoy every year and, and has a really important role in our, in our economy. It's also right. a lake that has some water quality challenges. Folks are aware that there's cyanobacteria blooms on, on Lake Champlain. There's a little too much phosphorus coming in. Off the off the watershed, off the landscape, that, that creates problems with water quality. Some some bays in the lake are, are pretty infested with aquatic invasive species. So we we do take the lead on implementing this phosphorus reduction plan. And as as the Department of Environmental Conservation, spend a lot of time thinking about 
how to keep the, the phosphorus that's on the landscape on the land and keep it from getting into the lake. Um, and that's anything from working with farmers on supporting the implementation of, of rec- required or recommended agricultural practices. It's making sure that our wastewater treatment facilities are as efficient and, and as, as modern as possible and avoiding the, the dreaded combined sewer overflows when there's a lot of rain and, and you know, yeah. doing smaller projects with, with shoreland property owners. So, yeah, we spend a lot of time on Lake Champlain, such an important lake, and, and we, we hope that our efforts will lead to uh, improved water quality in the lake over the next you know, few years. Yeah, because what concerns me is always the EPA is always hovering over going, fix it or else. And um, the thought of them coming in to to um, get the lake where they want it is uh, always concerning me. And in the back of my head, I don't think people realize what an economic, as you mentioned, what an economic driver Lake Champlain is to this state. So it's really important to get it right. Um, anyway, I yeah, asked uh, uh, Oliver to come on the show today because... There are regulations out there that um, deal with uh, the use of wake boats. And um, I did a show uh, maybe about a, um trying to think. I think in the beginning of the year, around January, um, and then we'll talk about the opposition to, um, to what's happening with wake boats. But can you talk a little bit, Oliver, about how popular wake boats are in Vermont and um, what they're used for as far as water sport? Yeah, sure. So, you know, Vermont um, allows for motorized vessel, motorboat use on, on many of our lakes and ponds. Not all, of course, but on, but on many of them. And there's some rules and statute and also some, some, some governing rules um, about how, we, how people that want to use those boats can do so in a safe manner and in a manner that, you know, keeps, keeps the boats when they're moving at speed away from other people, away from the shorelines, which are, which are fragile. They, they're susceptible to erosion. Um, you know, and I think for, for conventional motorboats, you know, the kind with, a, with an outboard or inboard motor um, that's meant for cruising or water skiing, you know, we have, we have a decent set of uh, laws and, and rules in place governing their use and, and some, some really talented and dedicated officials in Fish and Wildlife and State Police Marine Division enforcing those those rules and laws, you know, with some help from local law enforcement as well. The wake boats are a relatively new class of, of motorized vessel, um, and um, they're certainly growing um, in, in, in popularity. I think they're one of the fastest growing segments of the um, water sports market, but they're, they're still relatively infrequent in Vermont. You know, I think it's, it's certainly less than 5% of all motorized vessels out there that are wake boats, but, but they are increasing in number and they're, they're starting to, to be seen on, on lakes and ponds. And, you know, these are expensive boats, some sometimes costing up to a hundred thousand dollars that have a couple of unique features. They have very large motors um, that can generate, you know, a large wake and with a lot of power. And, and then they also have ballast tanks, which in, in typically in three parts, three areas on the boat, the, the bow and the, in the middle part of the boat and in the stern that you fill up with water to make the boat heavy. And the combination of the large motor and the ballast tanks um, allows the boat to sort of plow forward and generate this very large wake, you know, up to, up to four or five feet in height right behind the boat. And that allows people that, that use these boats to surf on, on a wakeboard or a surfboard right behind the boat without a rope. 
And so these boats move slowly and when they're in their you know, wake sports mode, I call it, they, they move in a straight line and someone right behind the boat, you know, three or four feet behind the boat can surf on this large wave that's generated. Um, and that's, that's a, a, a sport that's, that's growing in popularity. You know, you can, you can also use it for more conventional wake boarding where you're, you're being towed by a rope. But I think the, what, what people who have these boats really want to do is, is, is be surfing behind the boat. And so those, those large wakes, make surfing possible. They also create some challenges for um, lake ecosystem health, um, as well as some, some public safety issues, which, which we can get into later. Yep, right. Well, thank you for that. And um, they are quite different than water ski boats, um, which just solely use for surfing on tethered line. Um, and I did a, I was, a, as I said before, I was approached by a group calling themselves Responsible Wakes for Vermont Lakes, kind of rhymes there, and uh, they are very opposed, as you know, to um, regulations. They don't want to see wake boats go away, but they do want to see the regulations um, on their use changed a bit. Uh, They came on my show, uh, Vote for Vermont, my TV show, and uh, we we issued a a video with a, a lot of pictures uh, and charts that they provided about the impact of the wakes. And um, and as a matter of fact, you met, I think, a lot of them. You um, ran a public hearing meeting um, up in Greensboro uh, back in February, and um, I, I watched it on Zoom. You did an excellent job, may I say, in, in uh, presenting the facts and, and uh, dealing with the audience, um, which is hard to do when... They're they're opposing what you're saying, so good job. Hmm. Um, but I anyway, um, I put this a, a video out with um, emails. And, I mean, with the videos of the wake boat and its impact and everything. Um, and I know you were you were complimentary to these people by saying thank you for sharing, and it's good for you and others to hear both sides of an issue. Um, and maybe we could talk about, I just looked up on your website, talk about the rulemaking process. It didn't look like it was quite over yet. Uh, you've been to LCAR, which is the, um, well, you can tell folks what LCAR is as opposed to ICAR. Um, where, are, where are these rules in the process? Are they done? Okay. Yeah, so the, the rules are not done. Um, we are in the in, in the midst of the formal rulemaking process, but but backing up a little bit, um, yeah, the responsible wakes for Vermont Lakes groups have been raising concerns about the impacts of, of wake boats on lake ecosystem health and, and public safety. They have uh, they have some principal concerns about shoreline erosion, the, the the wake force from these boats stirring up phosphorus and sediment on the lake bottom, creating some problems, um, spreading aquatic invasive species because the ballast tanks from these wake boats can't be fully drained, and as I said, some public safety concerns. So. They actually petitioned the state a while back to uh, develop a rule uh, using our use of public waters rule to regulate wake boats. And they they proposed a a rule that would limit wake boats to use on on about 15 lakes where there's a 60-acre area that's 1,000 feet from shore on all sides and and 20 feet deep. Um, So that petition came in. We we began reviewing it as we're required to do under under statute. And... um, through our review, um, we actually back b- before the February hearing you mentioned last July, we held two public hearings, got a lot of public comment, did our own analysis of the scientific literature, 
did our own analysis of legal precedent, um, allowing us to regulate these boats, looked at what other states are doing, and eventually we came to a, a rule that would indeed regulate wake boats, uh, but would, would um, use a, a shorter, a smaller distance from shore, also known as an offset, that would, would be required for wake boats to be used. So we found that based on scientific evidence and some studies that have been published, a distance of 500 feet from shore is enough to allow the wake boat energy uh, from those waves to be equivalent to a conventional motorboat 200 feet from shore, which is what is required by law in Vermont. So we didn't want to create a more stringent rule for wake boats than conventional motorboats. So we, back in February in Greensboro, we presented a rule which, which, as I said, would allow wake boats on lakes where there's a 50-acre zone um, that's 500 feet from shore on all sides and, and 20 feet deep. And that, that depth was required to avoid throwing up the lake bottom's uh, sediment and increasing phosphorus concentrations in the lake. So that's the rule that, that we shared with the public in February, and that's the rule that we're um, using for, for rulemaking. We, we did present a couple weeks ago to ICAR, which is the Interagency Committee on Administrative Rulemaking, sort of represented by different uh, representatives of different state agencies sitting on ICAR, and uh, they approved our rule. They, they voted on it unanimously to proceed into formal rulemaking, and then our next step will be to hold two more public hearings in, in the beginning of August to get public comments on our on our draft rule. So that, that draft rule is up on our website now, and it, it has the actual language that we're proposing to amend the use of public waters rule and, and include a, a regulation about wake boats. And, and our regulation would allow wake boats to be used on about 30 of the larger and deeper lakes and ponds in the state, and all the rest, you know, over 770 would be prohibited. Um, and I'll, I'll just make, make one last comment about our proposed rule. It's, we feel that it's supported by, by scientific evidence, is, is a good compromise, um, it, it, it meets the spirit of the use of public waters rule, which requires us to, to regulate public use conflicts in the least restrictive manner possible that still addresses the conflict. And finally, it would be by far the most restrictive statewide rule in the country, if not the world. So I think Vermont is taking an important step forward to, to study the use of these boats, study how they're impacting our waters, and also figure out how they can be used safely for those people that have them. Um, and, and so we allow a, a diverse mix of recreation and create a situation where wake boats can be used in, in the larger and deeper lakes and ponds where it's possible to use them safely and without damaging the environment, but prohibit them on smaller lakes and ponds where those two conditions can't be met. Oliver, could you? Um, I sort of I have to cut you off at the end there because of the because uh, of the break. But could you repeat again the dates for the public hearing? Because um, I'm sure there are people that would want to weigh in. Yeah, sure, no problem. So we'll have a in-person public hearing on August 1st in Montpelier at the uh, Montpelier Pavilion building in the auditorium. Um, that's that starts at 5 p.m. and then we'll have a virtual only hearing using the Microsoft Teams virtual meeting platform on August 3rd, also starting at 5 p.m. Uh, the details are on our website. If you Google them, Vermont DEC, uh, which is Department of Environmental Conservation. So again, Vermont DEC lakes and ponds rulemaking. Um, there's information about those two hearings and then how to sign up to make a comment um, about the proposed rule 
uh, at either of those hearings, and the proposed rule itself is also available on that on that site. So all the information the public needs to see what our exactly what our proposed rule is, how we've worded it, what the legal text is, uh, and, and also our submission to the the state rulemaking process with the economic analysis, the impacts of, of our rule on, on Vermonters and on boat use and on other aspects of, of public water use, the environment, et cetera. All that's available on our on our website now and I encourage folks to take a look at it and then come to one of the two hearings and, and make their voices heard. Thank you for that. Um, I must say, um, I as I said, I had the responsible Wakes for Vermont Lakes people on my show and one thing I was impressed with, as as there's a lot of people in Vermont that say, no, don't do this, no, but they never give you recommendations of what they'd like to see you do. This group actually submitted um, re- um, requests of recommendations for what should be changed, and um, I was impressed that, that they didn't want to see the wake boats leave. They understand their value, but that some control would be um, put in place um, a little bit more stringent than, than the regulations have now. Um, and I think you mentioned quite a few of them, the, keeping the, the wakes and the boats away from the shore, um, and not running the boats in sh- somewhat shallow water, um, and the size of the lake um, should be, um, there should be some lakes that they are not allowed on, whereas they're allowed on others with, um, I think they said a minimum of 60-acre wake sports zone where you could uh, have 60 acres of, of uh, water to um um, to use the wake boats. Um, they also provided, um, which I sent to you, I'm sure you've seen it, was two scenarios. One that said, if we don't do anything, there's no further regulations, what will happen? And if uh, scenario two was, if we did implement what they suggested, what would happen? And um, we don't really have the time to go through all of these, but um, how do you, when you take information from the from the public because this was not done overnight i think this started 2022 oliver maybe or even further back than that yeah even further back i mean in vermont there's a there's a long tradition of of pub, the public of lake associations of individuals of of towns of groups of property owners petitioning the state to uh develop and implement regulations around the use of public waters back when we used to have the the Water Resources Board, you know, that kind of thing happened regularly. And many of the use of public waters rules that exist today are in response to petitions that came in from, from the public. So the Responsible Wakes for Vermont Lakes Group essentially carried on that, that tradition. And, and as, as they are allowed to, uh, under statute, um, they, they petitioned the state to regulate wake boats because they saw an issue there. They saw a, a conflict in the uses of our public waters over lake boats, over wake boats, and, you know, to their credit, they, they did a lot of research, they did their homework, and they submitted a, a couple of years back a, a very comprehensive um, petition requesting that the state regulate these these boats, this class of boats. And as, as you said, they, they proposed a specific rule that the state could implement um, that they thought made sense um, governing, you know, wake boats, which, which as you said, was, was, you know, quite restrictive. It would limit wake boats to, to use in about 15 uh, lakes or ponds in the state, those that, as you said, could could have a zone that was at least right. uh, a thousand feet from shore on all sides, at least 20 feet deep, and um, at a minimum of 60 acres meeting those two criteria. So that's their perspective. You know, we're not that far apart.
from them, but but what what we did is we looked at the science, we looked at some studies that have been done, um, really showing with the force and the energy and the height of the waves that are generated by these wake boats are, and how long it takes those waves to, to dissipate, not to nothing, but to the level of a conventional motorboat that's 200 feet from shore, because that's what's already allowed in, in Vermont. Yeah, in a conventional motorboat, once you're 200 feet from shore, you can move at high speed and you can generate a wake. Um, so that's an allowed use. That kind of wake energy is, is, is hitting our shorelines all the time. So we wanted to have an equivalency for wake boats to that existing allowed use. And, and what we found is there's really a range of, of between 425 and 600 feet uh, from shore required for a wake boat wave to sort of dis- to dissipate to the same level of energy as a conventional motor boat. And so we, given given the range that, that exists, you know, given sort of some some errors and standard deviations for those findings, we chose the the middle value of 500 feet as as the basis for the regulation that we're moving forward to um, in rulemaking. Again, a 500 foot distance from shore required. Um, we also chose a minimum size of 50 acres. That's a bit smaller than what the the petitioners uh, requested, but. We chose 50 acres, sort of looking at what's the minimum size to allow a, a wake boat run to take place uh, in a safe manner and, and still allow them to, to you know, do their sport as, as they want to. So moving at their speeds uh, of, of, of wake sports, which is about 10 to 12 miles per hour, we found that in, in, in our lakes, if you, if you give them a 50-acre zone, they can do at least a three-minute run and be 200 feet away from all other boaters but still stay in that zone, um, and that 200 feet requirement is also a legal requirement under statute. So that's how we we arrived at our, our 50 acre size. So again, our, the differences are are not enormous. Um, and then when you when you apply those those rules and say, okay, DC is saying you got to be 500 feet from shore, 20 feet deep, and have 50 acres. How many lakes are eligible? And we get to 30 or 31. Their rule, which was more restrictive, would only allow wake boats on about 15 mm-hmm. lakes. Um, so that's that's the difference between their petition mm-hmm. and what we came up with in our rule. Um, you know, we're they're a very dedicated group of volunteers. We're the we're the state officials um, mandated to to do this work. I just wanted to ask um, Oliver, when you get all of this information. Uh, through the LCAR process, people are, are able to talk to LCAR and ICAR, which is the legislative um, review process. What do you do with all this information? Um, because uh, people need to know that they are heard. That's very important. You may not agree, but um, but at least they are heard. Um, and and how does science fit in with all of this for you to issue your regulations? What do you? What do the? What are the rules supposed to do? Um, to impact our lakes and ponds. And, and I know how passionate people are because I live in Berlin and there's this thing called the Berlin Pond, which I'm sure you've been yep. involved in over the years, about whether boats should be on it, the canoes, motorized. So I understand the passion. Yeah, sure. I mean, so the first part of your question, um, we've already had two rounds of public meetings and public comment in the uh, what I call pre-rulemaking period. And um, what we did, you know, last uh, July, we had over 80 verbal comments and over 300 written comments. And so those comments were reviewed, every single one of them. 
and that influenced our, our decision making on, on what, what our draft rules should look like. And lots of people made really great points. Um, and I think that that was that played a role in, in formulating the, the rule that was not quite as restrictive as what the petitioners had had asked for. Coming up to the August uh, hearings, which is part of formal rulemaking, in addition to those two hearings, people can also submit written comments. There's, there's information for how to do that on our website. Once those comments are in, we will um, respond uh, in writing to every single one of them in what's called the responsiveness summary. So we'll, we'll of course, group them. If a lot of people are making similar comments, we'll, we'll right. group our responses, but we'll explain you know, how we uh, addressed or incorporated or chose not to incorporate that comment in our final rule. And so we We've, we've finished um, the, the, the part of the rulemaking process where the administration uh, looks at the rule. We go to the public hearing step, and then we finally present our, 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 final, draft, our final draft rule to the Legislative Committee on Administrative Rulemaking, LCAR, and, and they'll get a chance to <laughs> look at what we're proposing, ensure that it's consistent with, with Vermont's statute, and maybe offer some, some of their own thoughts on it. When we get there, we'll see. So we will, but your first question about how do we uh, deal with those comments. One, we, we, we review them, they, they influence our thinking, and for the upcoming comment period during formal rulemaking, we will respond to every single comment that's made. You know, to your second question on the use of science in this, we wanted this, this rulemaking process to be very you know, science-driven, very rigorous, quantitative if possible, and so we did a very extensive literature review about the, the scientific literature available to date on wake boats. And, and fortunately, there have been some studies, anything from how long a zebra mussel can survive in, a, oh. in the ballast tank of, of a wake boat after it leaves a, a lake to you know, what's the distance from shore needed for a wake boat wave, energy, wake height, wake power to dissipate, you know, to how deep does a lake have to be uh, for a wake boat wave to not stir up the, the lake bottom sediment. So those, those studies have been done, and we incorporated the, the, the evidence from those scientific or peer-reviewed studies into our, our rule. And there's a really influential study coming out of the St. Anthony Falls Laboratory in Minnesota, which, which was comparing wake boats at different distances from shore to conventional motorboats. And that's, that's the study I mentioned earlier right. that referenced a 425 to 600-foot offset required to have equal wave height, energy, and power from wake boats to conventional motorboats 200 feet from shore. And that study is, is really one of the principal um, bases for our, for our rule. And there was another study that showed as long as you were 20 feet deep, um, you wouldn't have a really harmful impact on lake bottom sediment. So that's really the influence for our 20 feet deep part. Um, and then part of our wake boat rule is, is, is set up to avoid spreading aquatic invasive species. That's called the home lake rule. And that came out of evidence that wake boats can indeed uh, transport um, aquatic invasive species, and so the home lake rule is meant to reduce that risk. So this is a very science-based rule. We wanted it to be objective. We wanted it to be a credible process, and we didn't want to be accused of, of you know, playing favorites or, or any other process that wasn't rigorous. Alder, could you expand a little bit on the home rule um, discussion you just you just talked about? Just ex- expand it a little bit because that was a big issue. Um, in, yeah. in my discussion with uh, that group. Yeah, and this is the benefit of, of the public input process. The, the Home Lake Rule was not part of the petition uh, that we received from the Responsible Wakes for Vermont Lakes group, 
But by going out and doing these, these public meetings last July, we did hear that there's a lot of concern about how wake boats could increase the risk of spreading aquatic invasive species. And so, you know, in consultation with members of the public, we came up with a rule that, that basically says if you use your wake boat on, on one lake or during the course of the summer, which most people do, either you trailer that boat in and out of that one lake because it's close to your house or you have a mooring or a dock on that lake, that lake is your home lake and you can use it there as much as you like, no problem. But if you want to trailer your wake boat to another lake, um, you have to have it decontaminated at a registered DEC service provider prior to entering uh, another lake. And that's, that's to spray out the ballast tanks and some of the other pipes and, and valves of, of the wake boat to make sure they're not harboring any uh, aquatic invasive species. That's what the decontamination does. But then you're not bringing, you know, zebra mussels from Lake Memphis Magog to a lake where um, they're, they're, they don't exist. Or you're not bringing, you know, an invasive plant like Eurasian water milfoil from, say, Lake Bomazine where it's found to, you know, Lake Seymour where it's not uh, currently found. And people are working really hard at the Lake Seymour to keep Eurasian water milfoil out. So that's that's the intent of the home lake rule. We, we didn't want to say you can't trail your wake boat from one lake to another because we don't have that, that jurisdiction but we, we do have the jurisdiction to say, hey, if you want to do this, you've got to decontaminate your boat because the very act of moving a wake boat from one water body to another uh, increases the risk of spreading aquatic invasive species. And, and the state has already decided that we don't want that to happen, and hence the ability to require this decontamination. Well, I sure know about zebra mussels from my days at DMV because every boat registration we had to put on warnings um, to give to the boaters about, um, you know, the transfer of, of uh, these little creatures to other uh, lakes, which is serious stuff. So I'm, I'm yep. glad that um, that we have that happen because you can't totally, you said this before, you can't totally um, empty out the ballast. Is that true? Yeah, as wake boats are designed currently, you, you come out of the water on the trailer, and either on a slightly inclined spot, think of a wake boat, think of a ramp rather, an access area, or even on a flat spot. When these ballast tanks are drained, there's, there's typically around five gallons of water left, and that's that's been shown in, in studies. And that's that's enough water for certain types of aquatic invasive species to survive. And so that's actually, you know, there's, there's statute that says, you know, boats need to be drained um, before they can leave a, a, a lytic area. The only exceptions for a bait box but bilge pumps, ballast tanks need to be drained. And so, you know, you can argue that the fact that a, a wake boat can't be fully drained is, is in violation of that statute. We took a different approach saying that's not really something that's very easy to enforce. So rather than trying to, you know, go after people for having a few gallons of water in their tanks, let's, let's, let's be more focused on the problem, which is, hey, that water can harbor invasive species. So by decontaminating the tank, by spraying it with hot water, we can kill those invasive species and therefore allow the, the boat to be used in a, in a different lake in a safe manner vis-a-vis -vis aquatic invasive species, you know, and comply with the spirit of, of that piece of state statute, which is to reduce the, the spread of, of these invasive species. So I think we've landed in a good point. You know, we, we will have to do a lot of outreach to the public about this, this part of the rule and be clear about the requirements, how it's going to be enforced, where these service providers are. So, you know, if the, the rule is passed, you know, this later this summer or fall, as, as we anticipate, it, it won't take effect until next year, and we'll have sort of fall, winter, spring to educate the public about these new requirements. 
that's great. Thank you for that. Um, I know on your uh, Greensboro uh, public hearing, um, I saw the number of people who tuned in to listen didn't speak, but there were hundreds of people. I should have such a response on yep. uh, some of the shows I do. It was amazing because um, our lakes and ponds are really important to us. It's part of our charm. It's part of our beauty, and it's definitely, as we said about Lake Champlain, part of our economy. Uh, so you have an important job to do there. Um, so when the final ruling is done, sounds like maybe in a year, maybe? Yeah, that's correct. Um, I think we, 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 well, a little before that, you know, we, we hope to complete the rulemaking process this fall. You know, we'll, we'll do these hearings in mm-hmm. early August. It'll take some time to study all the comments we get, including written comments. Uh, at that point, we can consider um, making some changes to our draft rule based on the comments that come in. Um, that's not a guarantee that we'll do that, but we can certainly consider it. That's the point of having these hearings is to, to right. take comment from the public and see if there's any change that should be made. We'll then need to present that to our agency of natural resource leadership, um, make sure everyone within the agency is on board, you know, consulting with Fish and Wildlife, other departments of, of other divisions of DEC, et cetera, um, forest parks and recreation, and then, as you, as you said earlier, go, we'll then go to the legislative committee on administrative rulemaking or LCAR, which is the final step in the rulemaking process. So we'd like to do that this fall, uh, earlier as soon as we can, and then if, if if it passes through LCAR and the rule becomes official, we would then have an effective date of maybe May 24, which is the start of the boating season next year, and and use the time between the fall and May to to get all the information out about this rule. We're going to have an app that boaters can use on their smartphone to see when they're in the wake sports zone, when they're in the part of the lake where wake sports are allowed. So they'll know, Hey, I'm in this lake. Now I can fill up my ballast tanks and start operating my wake boat as designed. Um, and, and so that way people will be able to know, you know, where they can use their boat in that wake sports mode and, and where they can't. And so anyone with a smartphone, which most people have these days can, can, can download that app and, and figure that out. And so that's better than just having a map at the access area or something on a website, something practical that people can hold in their hands and say, okay, great. I'm in the wake sports zone in, you know, this large lake. Uh, let's, let's, let's go. Let's go have fun. Let's use these boats as they were designed to and stay within that zone. So that's, that's part of our enforcement approach. Um, so that should all hopefully, you know, if things go as planned, be, be on the books and be in effect uh, this, this time next year. Oliver, I, I was going to ask this question, then I decided it was a little stupid. Um, but I'm going to ask it anyway. How do you know when you reach that 20-foot mar- uh, marker in a lake? Do most boats have some kind of um, measurement, depth, depth, I can't even say it, depth measurement on their, depth sounder. On their boat? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, you know, I think what, what, what boaters do today is, is you know, say the rule is, you have to be 200 feet from shore before you can operate your, your motorboat in a way that generates a wake and go faster than five miles per hour. So I think folks should eyeball it and you know, have some comfort level about 200 feet from shore. It's less than a football field and you know, to get out that way. Sometimes there's buoys to help you as well and, and off you go. So you know, these, these wake sports zones are going to be out in the middle of lakes in these areas where there's where the whole, all the water is 500 feet from shore on all sides and 20 feet deep. And at, least, and at least 50 acres in size. And so, yes, it's really impossible to know on your own where those zones are. So there'll, there'll be maps available at the access areas and on our website so you can see roughly 
you know, where where the wake sports zones are. But that's that's not really good enough either. Unfortunately, we live in, in, a, in a day where, where technology is has advanced and, and most people have smartphones. And so what we'll do is we'll, we'll, we'll set up a, every lake that's eligible for wake sports. We'll have a map um, that shows where those wake sports zones are. And so you can you can download that map into this app called Avenza, and that has that that map in in a, in a manner that's that's actually geo-referenced, meaning you can use the the GPS that most smartphones have and see with a little dot on the screen where your boat is and are you in that zone or outside that zone. And that that app will work even when there's no cellular coverage, as long as you download the maps ahead of time, um, because it doesn't require cellular coverage. It just requires the, the GPS in your phone. So you can check on your, your your bring up the app. Let's say you're on. You know, Lake Seymour, and you're using your your wake boat. You can look at the wake, the map of the wake sports zone, motor at at low speeds without you filling your your ballast tank into the wake sports zone, which is which is again is large, at least 50 acres. Fill up your ballast tanks in there, and then, then begin your run. And you know, while you're navigating, you can you can see when you're approaching the end of the zone, and at that point, finish your run or or turn. I I, I understand that most wake sports happen in a linear manner. There isn't a lot of turning like there is in water skiing. So finish your run. When you get to the other end of the zone, and turn around and do it again, whatever people like to do with their <laughs> with their wake boats. So that's that's how that's going to work. We're, we're excited about that, and that'll be part of our outreach strategy to the public uh, in, in, in informing them about what this rule is and how to comply with it. So um, once the rule is final and it's issued, um, is there? Do you wait a few years to then kind of look back and see if you've gotten it all right, and if there are adjustments that need to be made? Um, I don't know if people do this on all rules. I'm trying to think back when I was in state government, if we kind of did a double check, did we get it right? Yeah, well, certainly, you know, these, these rules are, are it's quite a process to get them in place. Um, but if, if necessary, you can repeat that process to modify them. So, yeah, we'll certainly um, review the implementation of this rule, the enforcement of this rule, the public's reaction to this rule, and see if any changes need to be made. You know, despite our best efforts, are, are there still lots of safety issues involving wake boats that have that are somehow could possibly be corrected through a modification of this rule? Or is there evidence that wake boat waves, even 500 feet from shore, are still damaging um, shorelines in, in a way that we didn't anticipate? So yeah, we'll certainly be looking at those pieces. Because this is um, all, this is all new for you. Um, and you've got maybe experience in other states, what, what they've experienced over the years. Because this is, are these boats big? I'm trying to picture, I've never seen one, although I've, I've talked to somebody who has yeah. one and totally passionate about it. Um, are they, how big are they? Yeah, they're not necessarily any larger than a, a typical um, conventional motorboat. You know, they, they, they look like a, a newer water ski boat. Um, or it's a newer motor boat. You know, they're they're sleek and aerodynamic. Um, but when they're just cruising normally, you, you would have to be you have to be a trained eye to to see that it's it has ballast tanks and that it it has a, a, the engines or the motors big enough to to generate those large wakes. It's it's when they're in wake sports mode that they look very different. You know, they're sitting low in the water. Right. The, the ballast tanks are full. The boat is kind of operating at an angle as opposed to planing. Like motor boats do when they go fast, um, that's that angle helps them generate that large wake, and then of course the huge wake behind 
it gives it away very, very quickly that it's, that it's <laughs> a great boat. Right? It's hard to miss. Cool. Um, so, but no, they're not huge. It's not really size that that gives them away. Um, they're often colorful. You know, they're 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 newer and sleek looking. Good graphics frequently, but it's hard to generalize them. So they're they're out there, um, and you know, it's part of the the enforcement aspect of of this rule will be ensuring that our, our game warden partners in Fish and Wildlife and our, our colleagues in State Police Marine Division are, are aware of the rule and know what to look for. You know, and so if someone from the public says, hey, I, I live on, you know, this, this small lake um, where where wake sports are not are not allowed, and I think I saw someone using a wake boat here, you know, then then those law enforcement partners could respond to that and, and, and see if, if, if indeed someone's using a a wake boat on a prohibited lake and, and take the necessary uh, enforcement compliance steps at that time. Cool. Well, we have pretty much run out of time, Oliver. I can't thank you enough. You are certainly a walking encyclopedia. Um, and this is just one of the things you're in, uh, you're charged with, correct? You've sure. You've got a few yeah, other things on your plate. Going on. What, else are you, uh, what else are you working on? Well, let's see. Um, right now, uh, we, we this, this um, past legislative session, there's a lot of interest in our, our, our process to issue permits for use mm. of herbicides or, or, or chemicals to control aquatic invasive species oh. in, in lakes and ponds. Um, and so we're, we're gearing up. The, the legislature passed a bill to create a study committee that will study the existing law around that and recommend some changes. So we're that, that process will start soon. So we're we're gearing up for that, um, and tons of other work around either working with with shoreland property owners and towns to make their shoreland properties more lake friendly, uh, working to to keep invasives out of our lakes um, through different efforts across the state, and lots of monitoring work just so we understand the trends and and see what's happening in these lakes and ponds and, and takes the steps to correct any any downward or negative trends. Um, so we're, we have about 12 full-time staff, and we're, are, we have we hire another eight to ten people in the summer to help us with field work. And so there's tons of work going on across the state right now. Great. Well, thank you, and thank you to your staff. We really appreciate all the work you're doing, because what you do is very important to Vermont. Oliver Pearson, thank you uh, very much. Uh, it was a pleasure having you on the show. This is Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint. And um, next up, come uh, we're having um, a discussion about housing and the big housing bill that was um, um, signed into law by um, uh, the governor, and um, hopefully it will help with this housing crisis. Peter Tucker uh, works for the uh, Real Estate Association, and he will he was living in the state house every time I turned on the, uh, a Zoom to see what they were doing on the housing bill. He was there, so he's um, he's an expert, just like Oliver was. That's a great discussion, and I want to thank thank him. Um, okay, this is Pat McDonald um, from Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. Stay tuned. Bye. In decades past, you opened a business, hung out your shingle, and the customers came. Today. Hanging out your shingle means creating an engaging website. The modern consumer is using the Internet to find businesses like yours. Are you positioned so you'll rise to the top of their search? Let the Radio Vermont Group Digital Services work with you to make sure you're visible online and to target your marketing to location, demographic, and interest. 
Learn more at rvgdigital.com. Hi there, this is Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. Um, we have not heard from uh, my guest, Peter Tucker, who's the Director of Advocacy and Public Affairs for the Vermont Association of Realtors. Not sure what happened, but um, maybe miscommunication, but I can take you through Vermont Bill S-100, which is Act 47. Uh, if anybody wants to call in and help me out this hour, the number is 244-1777. Um, so this bill is, I, I don't know who came up with this, but it's called the Housing Opportunity for Everyone Bill, H-O, oh, H-O-M, House, Opportunity for Everyone Bill. I don't know what that meant, but that's what they said. Um, and it's refer- referred to as the Homes Bill. Um, many of the provisions, very, I, I read this bill, and it's very difficult to follow unless you're in the business, I do think, because it talks about uh, things that I am not familiar with. But it was um, the most of the provisions will expire in 2026. That was a concession um, made to the environmental watchdog folks who are worried about overdevelopment and sprawl. Um, which is something that um, I understand they're passionate about. Um, I still don't know why we can't do both, have growth and protect our environment. There must be ways to do that. Um, but the bill um, is focused on cracking down on municipal zoning um, that is seen by many as um, a, a problem in the housing crisis. And there's a significant investment that the bill makes in low-income housing stock. We have got one of the oldest uh, stocks, housing stocks um, in the nation. And uh, as you know, when you look around Vermont, the houses are old. And um, some are large enough certainly to break up into more than uh, one family unit, but they still um, need, some, need some serious work. Um, but they also, all the critics about this bill uh, focus on the fact that Act 250 was was uh, not touched as much as they think it should be touched. Um, Act 250, of course, is our land use regulations. Um, and every time they try to change it, there's so much pushback, they sort of give up on it. Um, there was a, a committee worked on this for a couple of years and were just not able to come to any consensus. Um, it does have to be changed at some time because um, when I worked at state government, Builders and construction people would come in and say to me, and when I was particularly in the Department of Labor, um, we want consistency. We want to know, we want predictability. That was the word they used. We want to know how much it's going to cost us and how long it's going to take. Um, and you couldn't give them that with our, um, with our pr- uh, process. So it's pretty annoying to them, and uh, I think that, ha- that doesn't help when they jump in and, and they need information. So hopefully um, this bill will help in that. Um, I was curious to hear from Peter what the Real Estate Association of folks thought of these legislation, because um, there's been always a push-pull dynamic in Vermont um, between environmental folks and economic de- uh, development pro-growth people. Um, but this year, I don't know what happened. I think the housing crisis got so bad that they uh, figured out that they all better work together because we're in trouble here. Um, we can't get workers. We can't get enough workers to 
fill the open jobs and um, there's no place for people to live and to afford to live. That's the key here um, is affordability. I think there's homes available, but um, how much can you pay for them? Um, so um, I think that the governor has said that this is not the end-all, be-all bill, um, that um, he really wants to see Act 250 uh, tackled next year and, and going forward. Um, but he did say that this was a very good start. Um, and one area which I think everyone agrees um, that we should talk about is permit reform. Um, and I think that um, it's that's kind of been, I've, I've heard it referred to as the political third rail in Vermont. Um, and we'll see what happens, um, because I think the legislature, both all parties, um, figured out that um, this is something we need to work together on to fix, because there's so many uh, rippling effects. I've got a list before me of um, uh, a summary that was actually prepared by um, Campaign for Vermont, which um, I'm involved in um, outside of WDV. And I was going to read these bullets to you, and if anybody wants to call in, it's 244-1777. Um, I'll read the summary to you, and um, you'll see how it is very complicated, and I think um, you really need to be in the business to understand this. Um, parking spaces were something that uh, was discussed, um, and they allowed one parking space per dwelling unit, uh, 1.5 parking spaces for duplexes <clears throat> and multi-unit dwellings. I don't know what a 1.5 parking space looks like, but I guess if you add a bunch together, you can get whole parking spaces. Um, they also talked a lot about um, uh, municipal bylaws um, requiring any single-family dwelling that had an accessory dwelling unit, which they call an ADU. I was listening to somebody talking about this the other day, and he kept saying ADU, and I'm going, what the heck is that? That is an accessory dwelling unit. And um, so they want to have the, that combination have the same regulations uh, required for a single-family dwelling. Um, so that may make things more uh, simpler than having a completely separate, um, a separate uh, regulations for an accessory dwelling unit. I understand, and I'm going to have the Agency of Commerce and Community develop on the show, that if the, that there's funding available and there's, there's um, requirements that go along with this um, grant loan, is that if you can um, change your house into a, um, an apartment, have a space for an apartment, um, uh, that they would help you uh, build that and uh, give you funding to make that happen, to um, open up... Um, your house um, with a separate uh, an apartment. Um, my house is easily trans, um, transferable into an uh, upstairs apartment, which would give somebody a uh, private entrance. Um, but um, that's something that uh, people may want to think about. Uh, we even talked about uh, things like that when we were talking to Rick Sangari the other day about um, sharing houses and um, opening up your home for other for other folks, there's so many. There's a couple of um, on my street. There's a couple of visiting nurses that um, uh, rent space on my street, and I think you know, great tenants. They're bonded. Uh, they've been checked, and um, um, what what a great um, person to to share your dwelling with. Um, anyway, there's that. There's a lot of opportunity opening up to create more space in your home. Um, 
And then they had a long discussion, which was over my head, I'll tell you, about um, uh, where areas are served with municipal sewer and water infrastructure that allows residential development. Um, and it's very complicated. It talks about how many dwellings you can have um, on the sewer and water infrastructure uh, for residential use. And then they um, put in density standards um, so that... Um, um, you're not uh, building on top of each other. Um, and they talk about multi-unit dwellings, which uh, the regulations have been um, uh, relaxed on when you can build multi-unit dwellings. Um, and they also talked about, I found this thing might be very difficult to, um, uh, to um, quantify. They talk about making sure that whatever is developed does not adversely affect the character of an area. Um, and that would be, I think the character is in the eyes of the beholder would seem to me, so would depend on, um, um, I think I'm thinking of my street and what I think of that area, um, and, but maybe my neighbor thinks completely different. So that's kind of an interesting area. I'd love to know how they, um, if anybody knows, how they determine what the character of an area is. Um, so um, let's move on here. I can get my computer to work. Um, they have a priority housing projects uh, with 25 or fewer units. They will receive an exemption from Act 250. There's a flag that should be waived. Um, this provision sunsets in 2029. So anybody who wants to build 25 or fewer units, um, they will receive an exemption from Act 250, um, which is um, enormous, um, because once you get to, into the Act 250 process, um, as everybody knows, it's a little complicated. Let me just take the break quick, and we'll come back and, and go through this again. Hi there, this is Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV, and... In the studio is Peter Tucker. Peter, welcome to the show. Good morning, Pat. Uh, sorry, I lost track of time a little bit this morning, so here That's I am. quite all right. The people always ask me, why do I do all this research and write up notes for my guests and questions? I think I found out why today, because yeah, I can actually read my notes. Um, but I'm so glad you're here, because I was telling folks that uh, every time I tuned on Zoom to listen to the housing bill discussion... You were in the room. I think you were living there this year. Well, it was certainly interesting. And, uh, <laughs> you know, the Vermont Association of Realtors, um, you know, very interested in housing to begin with. And, uh, you know, we felt like we had something to contribute to the discussion. Um, so it was, in, you know, interesting for me as it went from Senate Economic and Housing to Senate Natural Resources passed the Senate floor, then went over to the House, um, was kind of split in the House between House General and Housing Committee, okay. and then the Environment and Energy Committee uh, took the, the permitting portion of it. Um, so, you know, it was an interesting process at the end of the day. Um, I think we got what will be a productive housing bill. Great. Because I was telling folks about the constant push and pull between mm -hmm. Um, environmentalists and those who um, are, are looking to build and expand the economy and that sort of stuff. And there, I think that's always been an issue the, uh, between the two groups. Um, and I never understood why you couldn't do both. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I've I've had some discussion over the years with folks on the environmental side, and um, um, I, I just couldn't get them to see see what I was seeing. Um, so, what made them decide, Peter, to actually skip down and, and work together um, and, and put aside the, their differences? Well, so you know, we really this bill comprises well a couple of different components, but you know, one is municipal zoning. Um, and the other is more statewide, you know, planning uh, and and oversight, which is Act 250 generally. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think that we we've come to kind of a consensus that there are areas where we should encourage growth in, or, co- or encourage residential construction, and areas where that's probably not appropriate. You know, mountaintops and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So, but. Trying to delineate those areas has really been the challenge. Um, you know, when you look at Vermont's villages and towns, um, they're all pretty much built by a waterway, a river, a stream, you know, something. So you have this, this, you know, corridor that you want to protect, you know, and, and really keep out of, right, the floodway. Um, so, you know, it, it limits choices. Um, the way we've looked at towns and cities is is pretty much uh, from a historic tax credit perspective. Um, the designation areas, you know, downtowns, uh, village centers, were really, you know, designed to be civic and, uh, and commercial centers of towns with residential housing in them, but not necessarily specifically for residential housing. So then you think about residential areas that are outside of that and, you know, the Agency of Housing and Commerce has developed uh, designations, a neighborhood designation area uh, that is kind of surrounds towns more where there will be, where we should encourage residential construction. Um, but very few municipalities have really been able to take advantage of that so far. There's a lot of uh, planning and zoning, and, you know, so it goes back to that municipal zoning. Um, and if I can step back for a second, um, the, the National Association of Realtors uh, meet in May in Washington to meet with our legislators. And at every one of these meetings, our, our economist, Lawrence Yoon, uh, usually invites uh, you know a guest economist as well. This year it was William Dietz from the uh, Home Builders Association. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the discussion turned to why aren't we creating more housing? Um, you know, and why, you know, because this isn't unique to Vermont, right? Right. across the nation has been occurring for a number of years. You know, their opinion was, you know, municipal zoning is really the, you know, the the initial impediment to residential construction. And I was sitting in the crowd, kind of thumbs up, because I knew that's what we were doing with S100, uh, addressing, uh, you know, municipal, uh, restrictive municipal uh, bylaws that, um, you know, that, that we're hoping to encourage you know, by, restric- or by restricting those, hoping to encourage more residential construction. As you had mentioned, um, you know, parking parking spaces, keep those at a minimum, especially if there's public transportation around, um, and it's served by municipal water and sewer. Um, you know, allow duplexes, allow four units where there is uh, municipal water and sewer. Duplexes anywhere a single-family home would be allowed. With the same dimensional standards, right? Like you couldn't push into setbacks or things of that nature, but you could take, you know, an old Victorian and turn it into a duplex. And I think that's the, the vision of, you know, what this is going to do in the next couple of years. Um, you know, this, 
the new homeless housing bill, I think it's 171, um, also accelerated the time that that would occur to July 1st, 23. Originally in, in S100 set for July 1st, 24. So mm. we should start to see the impact shortly. But, you know, we've got these, I had, was able to listen to these national economists talking about, you know, housing issues across the nation. Um, and they're really, you know, two things. You know, one was we need to kind of standardize municipal uh, bylaws and zoning. And the other is that, you know, roughly 20% of construction is tied up in, in uh, permitting and legal fees. And you know, that in and of itself is something that, you know, that we would hope to, uh, to you know, to take on here. Doesn't really need to, you know, we can't solve the housing crisis with public funds. It's going to take, um, you know, incenting private developers to, um, to get into the business because it, you know, they can, they can make it work, make the numbers, uh, pencil out, if you will. Um, and, and it's really permitting that, um, that has a tendency to hold that up. So this bill, um, you know, went a ways down that road on both the municipal front and the, uh, the statewide front. Because I think the, the municipal, the zoning uh, in municipalities, that's something that's, at least in Berlin, I'm sure it's everywhere, whenever there's a change in our zoning, we have to vote on it. So the, the residents of Berlin have mm-hmm. voted um, about what they want to see in their town as far as, um, what was I asking about, the character of the area. Mm-hmm. Um, we vote on that. And uh, I guess I was I was a little... Surprised that they were they were focusing on municipal um, regulations because um, uh, it, it's you know we talk local control um, that's what the people in the town wanted um, I don't know in some cases whether they're right or wrong and everybody's protective of their space um, but I just I found that I just found that interesting that that's where they wound up as a, as opposed to fixing Act 250. I'm sorry, fixing up what? Uh, as opposed to looking at Act 250. Oh, Act 250, as the sure. Problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, um, I, I mean, I will say, you know, I have tremendous respect for Lawrence Yoon, who is our economist, and, and this other gentleman, Mr. Dietz, was equally, uh, you know, uh, educated on, on, you know, kind of what issues are out there. And, you know, and they said, you know, municipal zoning is, is really, you know, is an impediment to residential huh. construction. Um, and the standardized things that we did here, parking spaces, duplexes allowed, um, you know, uh, places with water and sewer getting higher densities, right. you know, were very consistent with what they were talking about. So um, huh. it, is, it is the state telling the towns what to do, though. I mean, right. you're absolutely exactly. correct. That's my take. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, it's, we'll find out in the next couple of years, but, um, you know, my opinion of it is that, that we're going to have, you know, reasonable construction. Um, some of the contractors that we listen to, I think we're, you know, we're really interesting in what they're trying, you know, what they're able to accomplish, even, you know, staying under the radar of Act 250 or, or, you know, going through the permitting process in terms of, uh, residential development. Um, so I listened to a lot of testimony. I, as you say, I was in the room quite often. Um, and when I wasn't, I was listening on Zoom. So, um, you know, the con- I, I was really compelled by those folks. Um, you know, what I can say is that, that in the Senate, 
um, you know, the Active 50 discussion, uh, you know, and this is really, you know, something you and I have talked about before, the 1055 rule. And remember right. that's if you build more than 10 units within five miles, within five years, you have, you become subject to Act 250 permitting. One of the guys on my government affairs committee is a builder. He's like, if I try to build a single family home now in my hometown, I have to go through Act 250. Can't even build one unit. Um, so the, 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 the Senate Economic and Housing Committee wanted to expand that to 25 units within five miles, five years. Um, and then the Natural Resources Committee pulled that back to just 32 towns. Um, one of the things that we were successful working with other housing advocates to accomplish was just to, uh, to try and include more towns in that 25-5 rule. Right. Can I ask you, Peter, sure. we have to take a break in, in a minute. Why okay. did they pick those specific towns? Uh, available sure. space or? They, they were downtowns. Ah. Neighborhood development areas, but a lot of neighborhood development areas surround downtowns and growth centers. And that was, that was that smaller group. And I think, you know, after our, the, your break, we can pick that up because it's yeah, pretty interesting also discussion. Like to talk about, and you may have heard me on the radio talking about the character of an area. Mm-hmm. That's, that's got to be an interesting discussion. Let's pick up where we left off. You were talking to us about uh, some of the changes. Sure. You know, with Act 250, uh, and you know, our government affairs committee uh, sets le- legislative priorities every year. We're working on next year's right now. Um, but one that's always been on our radar has been this 1055 rule. Ten units within five miles, within five years, a builder goes into has to go into Act 250 review. So uh, the Senate expanded that to 2555. Um, which was great, and then kind of shrunk it down to uh, to municipal to downtown centers, neighborhood development areas, and growth centers, which was 32, 32 of the two hundred fifty one uh, towns in Vermont. Uh-huh. Um, we, we thought there would be there should be a way to incorporate more villages. You know, when you think about the you know the um, the settlement, the consistent or typical settlement patterns in Vermont, um, you know, it's Burlington and other cities, but it's really, you know, villages set in the valleys of Vermont. And we really felt like they deserve some opportunity to, to increase uh, residential construction as well. Um, so in the Senate, um, you know, Senator Chittenden from Chittenden mm-hmm. um, actually introduced an amendment to expand the 25-5 rule to the what are called 10-acre towns. Uh, they're towns that have permanent zoning and subdivision bylaws, um, and there's 138 of those towns in Vermont. Um, so that made some sense, um, but actually didn't prevail in the Senate. So it went out of the Senate 25 for those 32 big municipalities, essentially. Um, when it got to the House, uh, you know, there was a bit of a back and forth on this, um, and I will say that that House Ec- Environment and Energy, who have been usually the the most protective of Act 250 changes, um, saw kind of saw a way to expand um, this this benefit in Act 250 to more towns. Um, and they said, "Look, you know, we can't do the whole township of these 138 towns, but let's do the village centers." And the village center, you know, remember we were talking about designation areas, is really just a civic and uh, commercial zone. It's very small. Um, but 
better than nothing. And we were able in the, in the, the house to get this expanded to those 138 towns with zoning and subdivision bylaws and, you know, an improvement in terms of how Active 50 was going to work with folks. Now, that's going to sunset in three years, but the sunset set once again by Senator Rom Hinsdale um, is really knowing that we have a designation study going on right now. Um, there is an act, there is a natural resources board study that needs to come back in early, uh, next year in the legislature. Um, and that, that obviously this continued discussion or this discussion will continue to occur. So, um, you know, we think that, that this was a good expansion, uh, a reasonable one, could have been better, but at the same time, um, you know, really does recognize that a lot of towns have good zoning and subdivision bylaws and, a lot of towns have good zoning administrators, so um, hopefully we'll see uh, new residential constru- construction as a result. That's great. Um, I, I don't know if you heard me talking about this character of the area discussion. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and I just want to read the, the whole bullet here. Um, it says, a determination by an appropriate municipal panel that a residential development will not result in an undue adverse effect on the character of the area uh, affected shall not be subject to appeal mm-hmm. if the development is within a, as you were talking about, designated downtown development development district, designated growth center, uh, and on and on. Um, I, I just think I know what I think of where I live at the character of the area, but mm-hmm. I bet it's different than my neighbors. So, um, how do you how do you determine that? Is this whoever's on this municipal panel determines? Um, whether the project's a go or not. Right. So municipal panels, be they, you know, the zoning administrator, um, yeah. and this bill does allow, if the, if the municipality approves of it, have their zoning administrators um, uh, automatically approve minor subdivisions, and the minor part is left up to the town to determine. Um yeah. Or you know a, a, a zoning and planning commission if if that's the way the town is set up. Um, but basically, you know, if they looked at a subdivision and they said, look, this this makes sense, it fits, it's um, you know it's it's in place, and then a somebody who wanted to appeal that decision um, would not be able to appeal their decision on the character of the area. Um, mm-hmm. That has been once again, you know, go back to the these national economists that I was listening to. That is one of those things, the character of the area, that has really restricted residential construction um, across the United States um, and certainly in Vermont. Um, it, it is, you know, a, a state uh, a state policy, you know, a state law that that towns are going to have to um, have to administer essentially. Hmm. We were also talking about um, uh, the priority housing projects mm-hmm. with 25 or fewer units. They don't have to go through Act 250. Now, there's a there's a shock to me that um, that they allowed that, which was good. Yeah. So, I mean, I think there's and there's some bigger projects. I know one in Middlebury is underway now, uh, where priority pri- housing. So, priority housing projects require 25 percent to be. Uh, continually affordable um so you know i think that that it's it's for bigger projects it's for bigger communities really quite honestly um but yes uh to if they are willing to commit that to you know uh 
low income or a, or mm -hmm. a, an affordable uh, component, um, then they can you know they get the avoidance of Act 250 on that construction project. Still would have to the municipality would have to weigh in on you know kind of whatever uh, you know things would be impacting their municipality. So Peter, do you think that um, I know I, I, I mentioned I mentioned a lot of times that. Um, when I when I was in the Department of Labor, all I heard from from construction people were they want predictability. Mm -hmm. uh, they want to know how much it's going to cost and how long it's going to take. Does this bill in any way change that needle so that these people would get um, would get their answers and and know how much it's going to cost and how long it's going to take? Yeah, I mean, if they fit into the right box, right? Like yeah, if right. if they want to you know to convert a single family residence to a duplex that is going to be an allowed use um you know it's just you know you you pick up your permit and go um huh. you know if if they're doing a, a subdivision development um and it's below 25 units uh they're still going to need a jurisdictional opinion from act uh from their act 250 commission um but basically would fall under a threshold where they'd have you know full review so you know there's going to be places where it's going to work. Um, but, you know, I think a, a lot of the certainty on projects is is the way things are appealed. And, um, you know, as we look forward to the Natural Resources Board, um, you know, uh, project on, on really on Act 250 and the way the, the commissions work, um, you know, who who's able to appeal and what are the grounds for them to appeal on? Um, it, it's got to be something that's part of that discussion, uh, along with changing maybe the way the environmental court works, uh, the way the Natural Resources Board is staffed, um, and the way that they, you know, try to get more consistent application of the law across, you know, different regional commissions. Well, that's always been an issue, hasn't it, about who can mm -hmm. appeal? Sure. Because it seems to always been very broad, and, you know, your uncle's, brother by the second marriage or something can appeal it was never it was never narrow enough to to make sense to me and others right right and i i think that that has got to be on the table as we talk about other components of act 250 um you know certainly um protecting you know natural resources uh and the working mm -hmm. land of vermont is is something that that environmental groups are very concerned about and you know, there, there's going to be some kind of balancing going on, right? Um, if, if, if that kind of reform can get done. And, uh, you know, I think that's, it's been a challenge in the past. Um, you know, we'll see where the uh, Natural Resources Board report goes, where, you know, what it looks like when it comes out. And, um, you know, and then what the appetite of the legislature is in the next, uh, next year, because it'll be the second year of a biennium. And, you know, anything that doesn't pass next year will have to start uh, in right. the next biennium. Um, so um, I, I, there's so many things in this bill. I, I, don't even, um, I don't even know how to get into it all. Mm -hmm. What I found, what did they say? Because there's a thing here that says the VHF will establish a middle-income home ownership development program. Middle-income seems to me to be where we're lacking the most, where people coming in from the state that uh, are not mm -hmm. CEOs or presidents, um, they just want a job, and, and that's what they need to, to see is middle-income homes. Um, yeah. And I'm glad to see that they're focusing on that. Well, don't – I depending don't on the program, path, you know, the way this bill was written uh, at the end, um, 
you know, it, it says for a bunch of these, um, you know, these uh, allocations of funds um, yep. that, you know, the program will be allowed so long as the funds are available. Um, ah. But in reality, um, the Vermont Housing Conservation Board got funded. Um, there, I believe there's $10 million in there for VHIP and 300000 for uh, navigators to help developers kind of navigate through the permitting lending, you know, all the components that they need to get a, a job off the ground. Um, some of those other concepts um, did not, you know, were not funded. So, um, and that, that missing middle homeownership piece that we did a year ago, uh, I think it was $25 million last year, uh, and maybe something in the, in the, uh, in the interim budget, um, you know, didn't get, didn't get new funding. So um, it's too bad. Um, you know, we'll, but we will see mandates? how those programs work. At least they were funded for a year and a half or so. Right. Um, Am I wrong that the middle income is is what we're lacking here to get yeah. more people to come into the state? Isn't? Am I wrong? Yeah. No. And you know, so we um, we kind of coined a phrase a, a couple of years ago about the housing continuum. You know, and, and if you and this was in the midst of the pandemic. So if you really think about it, you know, housing starts with folks exiting homelessness and then folks receiving a, a subsidy for rental housing. Um, the next step is generally market rate rental housing. And I think that's a big piece I want to go back to. Um, but then you get into ownership, right? Um, you know, first time home buyer. Um, step up home buyers and then you know there's luxury home market which is kind of right. takes care of itself but you know where we the realtors association fits in is really that first time home buyer you know and, and really trying to help uh, help folks find homes in Vermont um, but it, the reality is you know we need a ton of rental units as well and I mm-hmm. think that that ultimately from the realtor association perspective renters are, have the potential to become owners in the future and um you know at this point to you know to house the works the workforce that we're going to need to do you know some of these um you know some of these new bills that the child care bill you know certainly should increase the workforce but they're going to have to live somewhere um you know and i think that you're seeing you know rent rental housing you know start to to ramp up um maybe not so much in vermont but certainly uh, that was Across the nation, you know, rental housing units have have uh, jumped dramatically in the past three mm-hmm. years. Peter, I was going to when you were talking about um, rentals, I was going to ask. Um, I saw a lot of uh, eviction, the word eviction um, in this bill, and um, there's funding provided to renters to get legal representation, uh, but certainly not uh, offering the same benefit to landlords. And um, I think the landlord problem has been around for a long time. They doesn't seem to do anything to help the landlord, do they? Well, not in this bill necessarily. Uh, and I'm, you know, once again, I'm not sure that the, the uh, that tenant uh, piece got funded at the end of the day. But uh, last year in S-226, which is the housing bill, the omnibus housing bill from last year, um, there was some money um, to, and it, this generally is going to flow through the, um, you know, through uh, the Office of Children and Families, uh, DCF. Um, so, you know, I, and it was for landlord, you know, to, to catch up on uh, especially uh, damages, things of that nature. Right. Um, it wasn't a huge fund, and I'm sure it's been expended uh, by this point. Um, yeah, I mean, there's, you know, that's always been an issue here in Vermont. I think it's probably yep. everywhere. Um 
and you know it's just something that's that's got to get worked through there are programs you know sometimes tenants don't take advantage of them sometimes landlords aren't able you know um, but I do know that you know that the administration is trying to have you know find ways to balance these things out there's also a great mediation program uh, the apartment owners association and legal aid have been working on over the past few years and I think that's a you know, a, maybe a better outcome for a lot of these oh. Um, issues. Oh, that's so, that sounds encouraging because I know a couple of landlords and the sto- the stories they tell and the cost that they have to absorb um, if they're mm-hmm. able to get somebody to leave the apartment doesn't happen a lot, but enough to uh, um, really cause them some problems. Um, I'm sorry <clears throat> that these folks didn't use this opportunity, but maybe they will. Later on, so we've got a few minutes, um, about seven. Can you, I don't know how you're going to do this, but wrap this bill up as, um, as what your members are thinking about it? Oh, sure, yeah. So, you know, I think that, that um, you know, we have members on our, our government affairs committee, one from each uh, realtor board in the state, or at least one, and we have, you know, several from some boards. So, um, you know, we... You know, really looked at at um, municipal planning and zoning, um, and uh, you know, some kind of Act 250 reform as as kind of our legislative priorities. Um, you know, we also look at you know, understanding that that municipal infrastructure, the ability to have improved and expanded wastewater services, um, is critical to to residential construction. Um, you know, I. We were on board with you know all the uh, all the housing um, priority housing rental housing that 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 um, this bill is going to help encourage, um, but you know we do want to focus the discussion on home ownership. Um, we truly believe that you know home ownership provides you know stable uh, communities, stable families, um, uh, creates wealth like no other um, you know asset uh, group can, and you know while you know in the mid 2010 to 2015, you know, that was really maybe, you know, a percent a year or one a quarter percent a year. You know, anyone who looks at, at, the, um, at the, the value of their property, their home from 2019 to 2022 has seen significant gains in value. And uh, I think that's a, that's a real testament to, you know, why homeownership is so important. Um, we know that the, the BIPOC community has a much lower percentage of homeownership. And I think one of the interesting things, you know, is, is that, you know, when I talk with folks from those communities, you know, they're interested, they're more interested in homeownership maybe than the average person out there. You know, they see it as a real way to, you know, a step up and a, a way to create multi-generational wealth uh, for their families. So, um, you know, that's where, you know, that's where we want to see the discussion go. Um, right. You know, the Act 250 discussion is going to take its own course. Um, you know, we think that, that you know, simplifying the permitting process, um, reducing the, uh, the risk um, because it's it's really all about risk, and you know we were trying to quantify what's the cost of Act 250. Well, there's the permit fee, and you know the engineering and everything else is something you would have to do for any kind of project. Um, but it's it's more stringent when you're trying to adhere to the guidelines of Act 250. Um, but but you know builders should be able to do that, and if they can do that without incredibly additional costs, um, you know it's going to make their construction uh, more cost effective. That's great, Peter. Um, so, um, 
What do you look to happen next? Um, the Act 250 and all the things next year will be yep. a continuation of the discussion, one would hope? Yes, I believe so. And, you know, so what's going to be interesting is that the, the Agency of Housing and Community Development has a, uh, has a contractor working on a, uh, a study of the designation areas. Um, and, you know, I've had some discussions with them. Um, we're involved in that discussion as it goes forward. Um, but, you know, when you really think about it, you know, we go back to that village center and, and the original concept, uh, the historic tax credits that were given to these areas were uh, for civic and commercial kind of uh, areas of, of towns and cities. Um, the, the residential neighborhood around them, that neighborhood development area, um, you know, we feel should be either just given to towns that have permanent zoning and subdivision bylaws or make it really available to them so that almost every community in the state has this surrounding area, you know, that is, has incentives for residential development, you know, uh, the 25-5-5 rule or, you know, what have you. Um, and then there's the natural resources of Vermont, right, uh, which um, are, you know, river waterways going through the middle of a lot of these towns, but also the hills and, and mountains and working landscape of Vermont. So we're hoping that this designation, you know, maybe gets boiled down to those three areas. Um, that would simplify things, we think. Um, and it would also drive residential development to areas where you want to see it, you know, walkable communities, smart growth, um, you know, things that I think we can all agree on. Um, so, so that's, uh, you know, kind of looking, looking forward. Um, you know, the, the Natural Resources Board Act 250 discussion, it's a big one, you know, and, and yep. we've seen it, you know, get big and then not get accomplished uh, before. Yeah, so, you know, we'll just have to, to work on that as, as we go and see, you know, how far we can get this year. Well, Peter, I want to thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you for sure. all your work. Seriously, I yep. saw you every time I turned on Zoom. Because up oh, there he is. I look in the up oh, there he is. He's hiding over in the <laughs> uh, just listening. And I thank you for all the work you did for us on our behalf. Um, and uh, we'll see what happens next year. There's a lot of reports required, and the, the conversation will continue. Thank you all for listening. This is Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. Um, we won't talk to you next Tuesday, but following Thursday, we'll be here. Bye.